Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon, episode 64, King Joseph Bonaparte of Spain and Napoleon's older brother. Before we begin, I'd like to remind all of our listeners that if they'd like to support our podcast, please go to patreon.com forward slash generals and Napoleon, where you'll find a $5 a month option and a $10 a month option for bonus content and commercial free episodes. If you'd like to support our podcast in other ways, please go to Spotify, Apple, Google, and give us a rating, whether it's good or bad, on our podcast. We appreciate your support. Now, on with the show. We have a very special guest once again uh, joining us on the call, Mr. Graham Callister, all the way from York, England. Hello, Graham. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining the program again. I, I know um, we did an episode or two not long ago, and I, I thought it went well. So I thought we'd do another uh, episode on a very interesting older sibling of the emperor, Joseph Bonaparte. As the oldest sibling myself in my family, I, I kind of relate to this guy more than I do Napoleon. What is your thumbnail sketch of uh, Joseph? Well, as the older brother, he's meant to be the, the head of the household the patriarch of the family, I suppose, after their father dies. But Napoleon pretty soon overshadows him. And Joseph seems to slip back into this kind of, you know, being a nice guy, quite laid back, maybe a bit lazy. Um, but he's happy to let Napoleon kind of take the lead and everything. And I think the, Joseph's life is just kind of overshadowed by this force of nature that is his younger brother. Yeah. And I think of all the family dynamics that Napoleon deals with, you know, with his sisters, his younger brothers, his mom. I think Joseph's is the most interesting to me. Um, let's kind of dive into his story. He was born January 1768. So he's one year older than Napoleon. Uh, he's the oldest son of Carlo and Letizia Bonaparte. What was his upbringing like? Was it vastly different from Napoleon? I guess it was very similar. Yeah, absolutely. The, the two boys are about 20 months apart. And there's a big gap between them and their next sibling because, uh, unfortunately, Carlo and Letizia had a couple of uh, stillborn children in, in the meantime. So Joseph and Napoleon are the two who, who really kind of stick together. Um, and the, the first few months uh, of, of both of their lives really are dominated by the French takeover of Corsica. Um, and as, as people will probably know, Carlo eventually throws his weight behind this French takeover uh, he is named one of the 400 noblemen of Corsica. He's appointed as a, a royal councillor to Louis XV uh, for the, the town and province of Ajaccio. Um, so he kind of you know, throws himself into this, this pro-French stance. And so Joseph and Napoleon, growing up as, uh, as young boys, are kind of at the center of power almost in, in Ajaccio. They're not in a, a rich family by any means, but the house is often visited by French officers and officials. Um, with, with important men coming to, to see them. Uh, and Joseph and Napoleon spend a lot of their time kind of, you know, running around the hills, playing in the harbour, um, generally causing mischief as, as children do. Um, <laughs> they're, they're taught at home by their uncle, who's an archdeacon, Archdeacon Lucien, um, who is, is kind of housebound, uh, but is part of their extended family. And you get the impression these two are kind of slight tearaways in their, their younger years, uh, sticking very much together with, with Napoleon looking up to Joseph, the, the older, the bigger, the stronger, the wiser brother. Yeah, and um, 
I know in the new Napoleon film, uh, as part of the advertisements or advertisements, there's like this montage where it says, you know, he came from nothing and conquered everything. Now, I wouldn't say he came from nothing, Napoleon and Joseph, but they didn't. I mean, the chances of them rising to the heights they did, I would say it was one in a million. Were they, it was like a minor nobility in, in Corsica and in France itself. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're probably not even really minor nobility. It's just when the French takeover happens, uh, Napoleon's father claims to be noble. And the French government are on the lookout for people in Corsica with some kind of authority who are backing the new regime. And so when he says, well, I'm an ancient nobleman, they nod and smile and they say, yeah, sure. Uh, and they put him on the list of nobles. But they're, they're fairly impoverished as a family. Um, you know, they have a single servant that works for them. Uh, they only pay this, this servant three francs a month. It's an old family retainer, kind of a family friend almost. Uh, their mother does a lot of the housework. So they're not in penury or impoverished by any means, but they're not living a life of luxury. Um, uh, their education in Corsica is done by their uncle. They, they can't pay for any education. Um, so these are people who are, are genteel, perhaps. You know, they're on, in that strata of society, uh, but they're by no means wealthy. Uh, but right. also, no, by no means, they come from absolute poverty. Right. Napoleon and, and Joseph's father is able to secure schooling paid for the, by the French state. Uh, but Joseph and Napoleon received two different types of education, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. So in uh, December 1778, which is about two months after Louis, their younger brother, is born, um, Carlo takes Napoleon and Joseph off to France. Um, and he's, he's managed to secure scholarships for them in some prestigious schools paid for by the French crown. Uh, Joseph, he wants to enter the church. Uh, the, the Bonaparte family have this kind of history of people rising up in the church. You know, their uncle Lucien had become an archdeacon. So Joseph, as the eldest, is given the, the surest way to preferment in the church. And Napoleon is going to be destined for the army. So the two of them are taken January of 1779. Uh, they're both left there by the father to be educated. Napoleon is sent off to Brienne for military school, while Joseph stays at Autun to learn to be a priest. So they, right. they have a very different education there. Right. And, and not that Joseph would have become a military genius had he gone to military school also, but you wonder just he got a different type of educational background than Napoleon. So I wonder if that affected his career later on, you know, pretending or well, not pretending, but a acting as a military leader. Yeah, absolutely. From the age of 11, he is taught uh, the ways of the priesthood. He's taught reading, writing the classics. Uh, he is taught negotiation. He's taught uh, discussion. Uh, whereas Napoleon is taught the military arts. And I think this this probably helps to shape their personalities a bit as well. Joseph mm. later becomes very emollient, um, you know, very good at negotiating with people, at, at discussing things. He doesn't like confrontation as much, whereas Napoleon very much does. I think both of them have the same experience of being an outsider in France, but the actual content of their education is completely different. You know, Joseph is not taught the, the mathematics and um, the, the military skills that Napoleon is, uh, whereas Napoleon misses out on the classical education maybe uh, that, that made Joseph maybe a bit more polished and cultured. Yeah, that's an interesting point you just point, yeah, made there, that maybe Joseph not getting the mathematics or the analytical education, you know, he didn't know to make probability, you know, in his head when he's, you know, fighting the Battle of Vittoria, which was, in hindsight, a very bad idea. Maybe he just didn't have that analytical ability to figure out militarily what's going on. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and this probably comes back to this this education. Um, Joseph, at one point, uh, after about four years at, at Otong, did actually ask if he could be transferred to military school and said he wants to become a soldier. Uh, he decided that the priesthood wasn't for him. Um, and Napoleon actually wrote a really interesting letter uh, to his uncle. Um, um, it's Canon Fesh at this point, uh, saying, yep. well, jo Joseph is no good at maths, so he can't be an artilleryman. He's not wealthy, so he can't become a cavalryman. So at best, he'll become an impoverished infantry officer. And that wasn't the life for Joseph. So even, you know, in 1783, when Napoleon's you know, barely 14 years old, he's already kind of saying what's best for Joseph. And Joseph, of course, right. doesn't go into the army at all. Right. Till, till much later. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, point. I didn't know about that letter. Uh, but yeah, it seems Napoleon's already taken the dominant position uh, amongst the siblings. Yeah, yeah, so it seems. All right. Well, um, Joseph, after school, uh, returns to Corsica, but has to flee the island after the Bonaparte's conflict with Pasquale Paoli. Uh, shortly afterwards, though, he marries very well, uh, Julie Clary, the daughter of a rich merchant. Uh, Napoleon also becomes interested in one of the Clary daughters, but uh, that ends in a different manner, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so th there's this period after Joseph leaves school in France where he goes back to Corsica. His father dies in 1785, just after he gets back to Corsica. And so Joseph becomes the head of the household. Uh, mm -hmm. And he, he works for several years, um, kind of you know, keeping this household afloat. Uh, you know, he brings in the only money that that the, the household have coming in. In 1787, Napoleon pops back to Corsica. So uh, Joseph can go off to Pisa and complete his law degree. So this puts him in good stead. And so when the family flees Corsica in 1793, after um, you know a, a pretty brutal bruising encounter with Pauli's patriots, uh, you know Napoleon mm -hmm. and Joseph had hoped to lead in Corsica um, and they were basically thrown out. Uh, Joseph is the one when they land in France who, who with his law degree, with his background, uh, is able to actually start to make some connections. Mm -hmm. uh, the first of those connections are, are with people who actually helped get Napoleon appointed to his his job with the, the army uh, at Toulon. Uh, mm -hmm. But also he meets this this rich merchant uh, whose daughter is Julie Clary. Uh, it's a merchant in, in Marseille and they were accused of um, being counter-revolutionaries. And Joseph, as, as the, you know, the lawyer, as the man who had some connections very quickly after he gets to France, uh, is someone they approach and say, you know, can you help us? Can you put in a good word? Uh, and Joseph really hits it off with this family. And he and Julie, um, you know, very much are, are approved of by each other's families. They, they both have things uh, that, that the other family looks at and thinks, you know, that's a really good match. Um, they seem to fall in love quite quickly. Um, and so they get married in August 1794. Um, mm. As a, a kind of example of how much Joseph perhaps had, had fallen in love with this uh, this girl, um, he agrees with her that they, they will have a religious marriage. Um, and this is just before the news of Robespierre's fall arrives in the south of France. So this is when the terror is in full swing. Uh, you know, a religious marriage is a very dangerous thing to do at this point, a link to counter-revolutionaryness. So this is how head over heels he is with her. Yeah. Um, and Julie has a sister, Desiree. Um, and pretty quickly, Joseph decides, you know, this, this younger sister might get on well with Napoleon. Uh, and so he organizes it so that Napoleon can come and visit 
uh, when Desiree is there. Desiree lives with him and his wife for a while in Toulon, and Napoleon's often there. So, uh, you know, this is seen as a great attachment. But you now she's eight years younger than Napoleon, Desiree. Uh, she's very much swept away by this glittering young hero who's been promoted to general quite quickly. But he basically treats her like a child to be improved, mm -hmm. to be educated. But you feel that on the one hand, this is a kind of quick infatuation from Desiree, and Napoleon sees her as someone that he can mould to his own mm. uh, desires. So it, it's not exactly a great love match. Um, and then in September of 1795, when Napoleon's uh, in Paris, uh, you know, he starts to meet other women. He, he is introduced to Josephine and, and the engagement is broken off. Yeah, but I think it's interesting, you know, Desiree, it's not the last we hear from her. No, absolutely. She uh, she possibly has the, the most meteoric rise uh, and continued success of all of them uh, because she eventually marries Bernadotte, uh, one of Napoleon's, well, that's a, a general in France, but he becomes one of Napoleon's marshals. And of course, he goes on to be king of Sweden. And mm -hmm. so Desiree, who could have been you know, empress uh, had she, she married Napoleon, um, goes on to become queen of Sweden, uh, you know, which post she held until she died. Um, although she, she didn't particularly like Sweden, unfortunately. Um, right. so I, I don't think enjoyed being queen there. Moving along though, on the timeline, in 1796, he follows Napoleon, you know, into Italy with his, um, you know, triumphant march, you know, over the Austrians. But Joseph never really had the military, strategic talents that Napoleon had. Do you think it ever bothered him that his younger brother got all the attention? I know he liked luxury and the benefits that followed being Napoleon's older brother, but you wondered down deep if he was like, man, why can't this be me? Joseph is still seeing himself as as almost as successful as Napoleon. Um, you know, he's already got a political career going. He's mm. been a government official. He's got a lot of connections. He's the one whose connections got Napoleon several of the posts he's had. Um, he has the ear of the uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, and he, he gets himself appointed to diplomatic missions like in Genoa. So Joseph is, is, is successful in his own right in 1796. Um, but then when Napoleon wins these victories, 96, 97, you get the sense that Joseph is realizing how far he's being outstripped by Napoleon. Um, mm. it, it appears that he's still very supportive of Napoleon. You know, he, he goes out of his way to, to help Napoleon in what he's doing. Uh, there's no bitterness shown particularly. But I, I think that behind the scenes, as you say, he, he would have at least preferred to have a bit more respect from Napoleon. Um, especially given the help that Joseph had given him in the past. Um, he probably does feel a bit that, you know, he's being overshadowed now. Um, but I also get a sense he feels genuinely proud of what Napoleon's doing. And he is able to bask in some of this reflected glory to an extent. Yeah, yeah. There's that famous story later on when Napoleon gets crowned emperor. And he leans to Joseph and says, you know, if dad could see us now, you know. So I think there's a love there, and, 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 and I think Napoleon appreciates his talents. But, yeah, Joseph, like you said, is still having a decent career at this time. Um, in 1797, he is elected a politician on the Council of 500, which is probably the right place for him. And it seems he performs well as a diplomat also. Uh, he negotiates on his brother's behalf with Austria in the Treaty of Boonville and with Great Britain in the Peace of Amiens. Do you think he had genuine talents in this arena? Yeah, I think as a politician, certainly. Um, he is emollient. He is good at talking to people, at persuading them. Behind the scenes, he's a guy that people like to talk to. 
um, and he can help to persuade people. He can help to get them on side. And I think he, he is a good politician. As a diplomat, he's also reasonably good. Um, he has a, certainly a few qualities which endear him to the people he's speaking to. Uh, you know, 18th century diplomacy and, and early 19th century diplomacy is based very much on, on secrecy on the one hand and also on relative trust between the partners. So they know that the other side is trying to outmaneuver them, but they have to trust that if that person makes an offer, the offer is going to be genuine. It's, it's going to be upheld. Um, and Napoleon and Talleyrand, when they were negotiating, were not trustworthy. They would make an offer, someone would accept it, and then they would try to get more. They would always be after more or changing things to their advantage. Joseph didn't do that. Joseph was was an honest broker. Um, at Amiens, uh, Cornwallis, who's Britain's representative, complains that Talleyrand is moved by, um, I think it's, the quote is, a spirit of chicanery and intrigue, and he is devoid of all honor and principle. Mm. And when Joseph's appointing, he, he welcomes him, um, but he also describes him as well-meaning but not very able. Mm. Uh, which is maybe a bit a bit harsh on Joseph, but what I think he means basically is that Joseph will do everything he can honestly to try to get the negotiations through, but he's not a great negotiator. And what I think he means there is that Joseph never really had a, a complete command of the full strategic situation. Mm -hmm. He couldn't always appreciate the implications of everything being proposed, which meant that he often had to refer back to Paris for permission to do things because mm -hmm. he didn't quite understand. Um, and that just slowed negotiations down. Um, it, it led to misunderstandings, confusion. It irritated his interlocutors sometimes. Um, but he was seen as very much honest. Um, and that, at the very least, was was something that was welcomed. Um, fundamentally, people didn't trust the revolutionaries in general to negotiate. And Joseph was seen as one of those men with whom one could do business. Right, right. And I, I think people also need to remember that, you know, Napoleon was a micromanager to the extreme. I know there was that one joke when Prince Eugene was ruling Italy that if there was a fire in Milan, they would have to check with Paris to see if they could put it out. So I, I think maybe Joseph was negotiating, you know, on his be, you know on his best performance, but he had to check with Napoleon on a lot of details. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and this certainly hamstrings him at Amiens, that uh, he has to send everything back to Paris to be okayed. And Napoleon changes his mind quite frequently. So Joseph's embarrassed having to go back and saying, well, you know, we said this, but I've been giving instructions to the country now. Um, right. It's interesting that about this time as well, he's also offered the presidency of the Cisalpine Republic in Italy. Mm. Um, and Napoleon offers this to, to Joseph. Uh, and Joseph, it's clear here, knows that Napoleon is a micromanager because he says, well, I'll only accept that if you withdraw French troops and make this a truly independent country with me in charge, not you. Mm. Uh, and then Napoleon withdrew his offer and mm. said, well, you know, I, I don't want someone like that in charge of a country though. Uh, so it, it's quite interesting at this stage that Joseph clearly knows that Napoleon will meddle uh, and, and kind of figures that into his calculations of, of whether he wants to do something in his career. Right, right. Um, well, uh, let's kind of jump ahead towards that that end. Uh, in 1806, uh, Joseph's made general division of the French army by his brother and commander of the army of Naples. And after the ruling Bourbons flee Naples, Joseph is made the king there. How did he do in his first kingdom as king? I think his personality comes through here um, quite a lot. Uh, his kind of his honesty, I suppose. Um, and also his hard work. He is 
said to be quite a lazy man by some people, but he does work quite hard and he tries hard in this role uh, to rule both on behalf of, of Naples and doing what Napoleon has told him. Um, Joseph's guiding principles seem to be he wants to reform Naples to, to drag it forward into the 19th century. He sees it as quite backwards. Uh, he sees it as quite antiquated. Um, so he, he introduces reforms, um, things that he thinks will bring rational government. So uh, he suppresses the monasteries, he nationalizes their lands, he builds roads, uh, he creates a constitution, uh, he introduces the Council of State as a genuine advisory body, uh, he appoints new ministers who have experience with administration, most of whom are Frenchmen or uh, had served France in some capacity during the revolution. Mm -hmm. um, so he does all these things to, to try to improve the, the government of Naples. Um, he's hamstrung by Napoleon meddling by sending troops in, but not giving Joseph full command. Um, and he's also hampered by a, a huge campaign of banditry in the countryside. But despite this, he, he makes inroads. Now he, he does start to bring in more money for the government. Uh, he increases tax, um, or rather he increases revenues without really increasing the taxation burden. Um, right. He starts to combat banditry uh, he starts to introduce rational government, and you get the sense that he was building something in Naples. You know, Joseph thought he was there for the long haul, and despite the frustrations of Napoleon's meddling, Joseph seemed to be building something that could have led to, uh, you know, a, a stronger Naples in the long run. I think you're right, and and all that stuff you just mentioned, you know, he did that in basically two years or less, because uh, he's in 1808 shifted from you know, the throne of Naples to the new king of Spain. But I think he doesn't get enough credit for that two years in Naples. Um, and I'm glad you pointed out all that, all that work he did. He, he, he could work and be diligent when he put his mind to it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, as I mentioned, um, you know, Napoleon invades Spain and Portugal. Uh, and <laughs> unfortunately, Joseph is made king against his will of Spain. And this is right after Murat, as basically governor of Spain, uh, murdered a great many citizens in Madrid. So it's not the best situation to walk into. Um, the Spain one, I mean, was this an impossible role as king for Joseph? I think in some ways it possibly was. Uh, it, it's quite a different kettle of fish from Naples, where the 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 king of Naples was never particularly liked by his people anyway, and he'd fled. So there was a, a kind of vacuum of power. The Spanish situation, of course, Napoleon uh, invites the Sp uh, Spanish king and the crown prince into France. He has them both arrested, forces them to abdicate, and then declares the throne vacant. And this is seen as a bit of chicanery, uh, you know, a, a bit of uh, unfairness, perhaps. So Joseph takes the throne in a in a bad moment he's not seen as uh, a natural successor or anything he's just a foreign imposed king he's right. never able to to establish a civilian government now with this uprising going on he can't establish his rule in most of the provinces uh no, really beyond where the the french armies are um and his enlightened reforms that he's trying to put in place but he can't get the support of the the spanish nobility he can't get the support of the people and really, you know, without ever being able to establish his rule, it, it's pretty much an impossible task. Yeah. Yeah. He's not accepted as king by the Spanish, as you mentioned, who also derisively referred to him as Joe Bottle due to his drinking. 
he is ignored by most of the French marshals in Spain because they realize that only Napoleon's orders need to be followed. Is there any way in your mind that Joseph could have succeeded? Like if he was, I don't know, uh, if, he, if, if he was better supported by the marshals or Napoleon or left to do things on his own? Um, the Anglo-Portuguese army knocking around in the peninsula the whole time means that uh, the, the French forces there can never fully concentrate on establishing proper control. Uh, so they would have needed to be got rid of. Uh, the marshals would definitely have needed to be subordinate to Joseph. Uh, and Napoleon would have needed to stop micromanaging. Um, I don't think Joseph would have necessarily done better as a military commander, but he might have created at least a unified command. Uh, you know, Jordan would have been his chief of staff. Um, the, the unified command might have been better. Um, but Napoleon's meddling really undermines him. Um, every time Joseph gives orders, the, the marshals can point to a counter order coming from Napoleon somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, he, he can't really do much. Uh, the, the marshals, first of all, ignore him and then start being particularly rude. Uh, Messina and Nea, especially rude to him. Uh, Sultan Marmont just count him as a, a non-entity, really. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's, there's not much he could do uh, there. Um, I also get the the impression, though, that, that Joseph didn't particularly like being king in Spain at, at times. Um, I think he, he quite likes being called king. Uh, he he has a court that he gets on quite well with. Um, but he's increasingly frustrated, I think, that he's been moved between thrones. He's been placed on a throne that isn't really working and he isn't given any kind of leeway to, to do things in his own right. So, I, I mean, I feel a bit sorry for him in this situation. Um, yeah. it's, it's difficult enough fighting enemies in your country, but it's worse when your brother is constantly interfering and, and criticizing you fairly ferociously as well. So, um, you know, there are ways maybe he could have succeeded, but it would have taken a lot to change. There wasn't just one or two things he could have done to, to suddenly succeed. Yeah, agreed. And, um, I think these these next two battles are interesting. Um, you know, after huge losses to the Duke of Wellington at Salamanca in 1812, and at Vittoria in 1813, Joseph is forced to flee Spain. People always say, "Well, the Vittoria one was a bad decision." That it may be, but I think Joseph probably realized in his mind that you know I can't just run out of Spain. I've got to make a stand somewhere and at least attempt to maintain my throne. So I, I, I'm sure Vittoria could have been fought in a better manner, um, but I think. I think it was very brave of Joseph to kind of put his foot in the ground and say, no, I at least have to make a stand here against Wellington. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Uh, you know, he'd, he'd been going backwards from Madrid. He'd abandoned his capital twice in two years. He can't simply retreat into the Pyrenees without at least trying to, to hold the country. Uh, as you say, Vittoria could have been fought better, but the idea that they had to fight, uh, I think, is absolutely right. Um, you know, he had to take a stand and, and I think he is quite influential as well in saying, you know, we need to take a stand at some point. Yep. Um, yep. Alas, it just goes wrong. <laughs> yeah. Alas, it does. Very, it goes very wrong. Um, so uh, he goes bounding back to France in 1814. Um, he's placed in command of the defense of Paris while Napoleon is away from the capital in his little brother's last ditch effort to beat the allies. How did how does Joseph perform uh, commanding the defense of Paris? Not well, from what I understand. 
in early 1814, you know, Napoleon spent years complaining about Joseph's failures, but actually he's never questioned his loyalty. So when Napoleon's about to leave Paris and go off to fight this campaign, he makes the Empress regent, and then he chooses Joseph as her military advisor, and he's told to, to fortify Paris. But Napoleon, of course, isn't very far away. He's, he's only you know, a, a few miles away with the army. And Napoleon, being a micromanager, sends things back saying, well, we could do it another way. We could do something else. Um, so Joseph really doesn't have any authority. Uh, he doesn't have any um, any sway with the, the ministries. Uh, Napoleon is, is producing this, this situation with confused lines of command um, that really doesn't allow him to succeed. Um, mm -hmm. I also think he's not given enough credit, perhaps, for the the political skill he shows in these few months. Um, he, he starts 1814 badly, I'd say. Uh, Napoleon writes to him and says, no, can you please come back and, and help? And Joseph says, no, I'm king of Spain. I'm not coming back. Uh, and you know, Napoleon's uh, quite annoyed by this and says, well, you know, just just drop the title King of Spain. You can come back as a French prince and jo uh, Joseph won't. And they have a whole negotiation over this. But after Joseph's kind of fit of almost petulance over this, mm -hmm. he does come back to Paris and he is, is very instrumental in behind the scenes, talking to people, um, persuading them to, to you know, continue to back Napoleon. He's a, a very effective calming influence, basically, on the personalities in Paris who are beginning to waver. Right. Um, so... I think he, he, I mean, he doesn't do much for the defense of Paris, but I think he couldn't do much uh, because of this confused chain of command and because Clark, the Minister of War, didn't really want to be under Joseph's orders. Um, but I think he does do quite a lot to keep the, uh, the the kind of political class of Paris backing Napoleon to almost the bitter end. Because, right. um, you know, it's, it's not until late March that cracks begin to to really show there. No, I don't think he covers himself in glory in 1814, but nor do I think uh, it's fair to say, you know, he was really weak and, and had he properly fortified Paris, Napoleon would somehow have survived. Yeah, and, and Paris is not an easy city to, you know, blockade or, or close off, as Marshal Duvu found out, you know, a year later. It, I mean, there's a lot of access points so to, to say, oh, well, he should put up more barricades or done more. It, it's a very tough city to defend. Yeah, absolutely. And he's, he's only got, uh, you know, about 12,000 National Guardsmen, um, about 5,000 men in depots who can actually be used. The rest are either sent off to the armies or are wounded or untrained, ununiformed, unarmed. Uh, and then he eventually gets about 20,000 men from Marmont and Mortier's corps who, who kind of fall back on Paris. But, you know, with less than 40,000 men to defend a capital against an army, double that number, uh, where, as you say, it's a huge perimeter to defend. Uh, the defences hadn't been looked to at all by Napoleon during the entire empire. Um, it's a, a thankless task, really. Right, right. Well, after Napoleon's abdication uh, in April 1814, Joseph is ordered to leave France by the returning Bourbons and moves to Switzerland. However, as we all know, you know Napoleon returns to power from Elba in 1815. And does Joseph help him in this? Uh, were they in communication while he was on Elba? Like, how did, did Joseph assist? Uh, well, Joseph tries to help, I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, when the news comes that Napoleon escapes, Joseph uh, at first thinks that he's going to be arrested. So he goes back to, to Paris when he hears that Napoleon uh, is, is likely to take the country. He goes there for, for self-protection as much as anything. But then he, he offers his services to Napoleon and he's brought back into the inner circle, uh, but this time in a, in a political capacity. Mm. Um, 
he tries to, to persuade Napoleon to adopt a more liberal constitution, to work with the legislature a bit more. So here he's again showing his political skill. He understands what the politicians of Paris might expect Napoleon to do. And, you know, he, he along with Lucien, uh, helps to persuade Napoleon uh, to be, you know, or at least to pretend to be a bit more liberal. Um, he also, though, does rather bizarrely uh, send an unauthorized letter to Mura in Naples, encouraging him to support Napoleon, um, which probably didn't really have much effect on Mura, who you know, made his own mind up anyway. Um, but when Mura launches his assault on the Austrians and pretty much puts paid to any hopes for peace with the Allies, um, I think Napoleon was a bit angry with Joseph for sending that letter, uh, mm. you know, thinking it might have spurred Mura to action. Um, but nonetheless, you know, Joseph is, is nominated to the, the Chamber of Peers. Uh, he's given a nebulous task of coordinating the ministries in Paris. He's not given a formal role like in 1814. Uh, he's not made the, the Lieutenant General of uh, the Emperor or anything like that. Um, but he's given this informal task. And he, again, he does it well. Um, he does keep people on side. He does manage to get them to, to agree to support Napoleon. Um, but of course, events overtake them. Yeah, indeed they do. Um... As we know, in later 1815, after Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo, and let me know if this is true, because if it is, I think it's a very brave thing. Joseph bravely offers to switch places or trade identities with Napoleon so Napoleon can use his passport to escape to America. If this is true, I think it's remarkably brave because everyone's after Napoleon. Blucher wants to kill him on sight. You know, the Allies want to put him, obviously, as they do, and isolation in St. Helena, thousands of miles away. So did Joseph really offer to do this? Because I think it's very, uh, it's an incredibly sweet thing to do when you don't know what's going to happen to Napoleon. This story probably is true. But mm. Joseph, uh, the, the court with you know, Napoleon, Joseph, and a few uh, retainers had fled Paris um, and had got to the Atlantic coast looking for some kind of transport to America. Uh, Napoleon was hoping for French frigates, uh, to take him there. Um, and when, when that didn't happen, um, they're looking for another way out. And then news arrives that Louis XVIII has got back to Paris. So basically, you know, the royalist government is back in charge and everyone in France will be on the lookout for Napoleon. You know, the man who manages to arrest him will be set for life. Um, and Joseph had, had already arranged for transport on an American trading ship. Um, he'd secured a pass to get through French military posts to get to the ship. So he had his kind of, you know his passport and everything ready. Uh, he had this travel pass. Um, and when they hear that Louis XVIII is back in Paris and that Napoleon is in even more danger than he had been before, Joseph says, well, here's a plan. Why don't we say that Napoleon's ill? Lock their doors to the house so no one can come in and see him to make sure he's there. I'll stay in his place, pretend to be him. And Napoleon, in the dead of night, can go out dressed as me, use my passport and hope that the guards don't look too closely at his face or are happy to look the other way. Um, and he'll sneak onto that boat and get off to America. Wow. And, you know, Joseph's offering there to stay in Napoleon's place uh, and, and allow his brother to take this only escape route, because Joseph, had he been arrested, uh, there's no guarantee that he wouldn't have been executed as well. You know, he's, right. he's an imperial prince. He's high up in that hierarchy. Um, you know, they don't know how much vengeance the, the royalists are going to wreak at this stage. It could be right. that they'd execute all of them. So it, it's an incredibly brave thing to do. It's very selfless. Yeah, Napoleon refuses, but the two did look somewhat similar. I mean, obviously, Joseph was probably a little bit taller, but I think they did look 
it probably might have worked, at least for a little while. Yeah, that, that's what they thought. All they had to do was in the dark past a couple of outposts, and they would hope to go past without anyone seeing. You know, he'd, he'd pull his collar up, hat down, that kind of thing, because the, the two did look vaguely similar, uh, you know, as brothers do. Uh, slight height difference, slight weight difference, but in the dark, um, you know, who's going to see? Um, and, you know, th this may have worked, but yeah, Napoleon said he didn't want to expose Joseph to this, and he also didn't want to run the risk that the the ship that he would get onto would then be captured by the British, and he'd have this kind of ignominious scene of being dragged off a trading ship uh, and you know, taken off on a British frigate. He would rather, um, you know, walk himself onto a British ship and surrender if he had to. Right. Um, so he does refuse this, and in the end, it is Joseph who takes this voyage and does escape through to America while Napoleon surrenders to the British um, on HMS Bellerophon. Yeah. And um, after Napoleon's exile to St. Helena, uh, Joseph moves to America and lives there uh, quite some time, uh, particularly in uh, Philadelphia, New Jersey. Um, and it seems like it's almost like uh, his house is like an old, it's a new meeting place for uh, French emigres and old officers of the Imperial Army, doesn't it? It seems like, you know, he kind of, it's like the Grand Armée in America. Yeah, the, a lot of them go off to America because it's it's a, a safe place to go. Um, and um, Joseph, although he doesn't, I don't think, cultivate a court in exile or anything like that, he becomes a magnet for a lot of these officers who go to pay their respects, um, to meet him, to discuss the old times. Um, and yeah, he, he's quite a popular figure in American society as well, by all accounts. Yeah, indeed. Uh, but after, uh, I'd say, a few decades, he spends his last few years in Florence, Italy, where he dies in 1844. What do you think his legacy is? It's, it, I mean, of all the siblings, I think he did the most, but and not necessarily meaning that's a, a good legacy, but I think he, he tried more than some of the others. I think he was a very sensible brother. Uh, I think he's very much in Napoleon's shadow. Um, he's perhaps a, a relatively weak personality in, in following in Napoleon's footsteps, in doing what he's told. Uh, but he always tried to do what was what he thought was good. I think you know he he actually did some good for Naples. Mm. Um, he was never a military man particularly, and didn't try to gain a huge amount of of uh, military glory. Um, but he was a reasonable politician. He was a man of moderation. He was cautious, measured, broadly sensible. Um, probably out of his depth at the very highest levels, um, but he's he's not bloodthirsty, he's not a tyrant, nor is he you know, flighty and foolish like Jerome had been. So I think really he's a, a, a man who is loyal to his brother, he's a man who shows a great deal of, of common sense, and who did his best. Not always good enough, but he did his best. Right. Um, there's also the, the idea that I mean, his refusal to countenance a revival of Bonapartism after Napoleon the, the Second's death in 1832, you know, the death of Napoleon's son, Joseph becomes for legitimists the the head of Clan Bonaparte, you know, the, the man who should be in charge. And he pretty much refuses to forward that claim. And in that, at least, he removes one source of conflict from France. Um, so again, showing um, you know, a maturity there. It's not about personal ambition. It's about what's good for everyone. Right. Yeah. And I've read that, that, you know, uh, Mexico offered him a presidency and he turned that down. And, and, you know, it seems like he was just comfortable in his own shoes by this point. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he's a man who knows his limitations, maybe by this stage. He's been king of two countries, didn't particularly enjoy it, probably just quite enjoys being a wealthy private gentleman. Right. 
Indeed. Well, thank you for that, Graham. That was a fantastic uh, little analysis of Joseph. And uh, yeah, I think he he deserves more merit than he gets. And I, I, I appreciate your insight on him. That's my absolute pleasure. Yeah. Um, for those of you um, who'd like to follow Graham, he is on Twitter. Um, what is your, your handle there, uh, Graham, on, on Twitter? Uh, at Graham Callister. Graham Callister, or X, I should say. But uh, yeah, if you'd like to follow him there, uh, fascinating post that Graham has, and uh, we appreciate being on the show. Oh, thanks very much.